All right, Dr. Norton here with a second Hamlet lecture slash podcast. So last we talked, I was I was going through the opening of Hamlet. This play has a has a very important way of opening things up to us. Shakespeare is is uh, intentional about revealing some very important ideas. Uh, belief and understanding is is a key thing. How do we arrive at a place of understanding? How do we know what we know? How do we understand our own identity? Uh, there are other issues at play here. So many, so many things to talk about, right? Uh, issues of mourning. Um, how long is it appropriate to mourn? Uh, what is authority? And how can it be uh, usurped or acquired appropriately? So many things at work. And so as I'm looking over my notes here, I have so many notes here. But I, what I want to talk about today is I want to start with just this idea of ghosts and spirits. It must be asked what the audience would think of the supernatural appearance of the ghost. I think this is an important question to think about historically. Would the dominant sentiment be that the apparition, the ghost, is evil or good, trusted or not trusted? We have hints from Banquo in Macbeth, a different play by Shakespeare, right, who claims quite clearly that spirits were known to speak in partial truths in order to deceive people into all kinds of mischief. Right, that's an, that's an, interesting, an important thing to think about. One of the common views of spirits is that sometimes evil spirits were known to speak in partial truths in order to deceive people into all kinds of mischief. As I mentioned last time, in this opening scene, the men are unsure about which direction to take. The spirit resembles the former king, notably in his warrior garb, and he speaks of heroics and goodness, and yet there is still this doubt. Why the doubt? And, and, that, and part of that comes from the other things we've been talking about, or we talked about in the last lecture, is the fact that there is rumor of war, impending war. Uh, this is not mentioned in the play, but the fact the play starts with men in the sentinel, right? Men on watch. Uh, that definitely sets a tone that there is some danger, some imminent danger uh, out there uh, coming and influencing the kingdom. So that is another thing that, that kind of works into our understanding of this ghost, especially because he's in warlike garb. Something is wrong in the kingdom. All right. Um, this question, the tension between what is and what seems, is another good one. Uh, another interesting kind of thing that the play is working through. Uh, the actual nature of things. What is love? What is affection? And we see some of those things kind of dealt with at the beginning of the play as well as, as Queen Gertrude asks Hamlet to cast off this nightly gaze. Stop mourning and just, and just enjoy yourself with us here. Part of the reason that he's mourning is for his love and affection of his father, his deceased father. And mourning is a sign of that affection and love. That is why people mourn. Right? We take time to, to think about those we've lost. All right. Um, I mentioned the fact that Hamlet comes from the University of Wittenberg. That's wit, spelled Wittenberg, but it's pronounced with a W is a V in German, right? Uh, the town of Wittenberg dates back to 1293. The University of Wittenberg was established in 1502. So it's not a very old school. Uh, when we talk about Shakespeare, uh, a couple important dates for you to know. 
Shakespeare was born in 1564. 1564, he died in 1616. This is an important set of dates. And so 1564 to 1616, that's Shakespeare's life. And uh, the University of Wittenberg, so this is established in 1502. Not an, a very old school, but what um, Luther's, or sorry, what Shakespeare's audience would have known is that the famous Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, uh, was, was a teacher at this school, University of Wittenberg. Is this one of the ways that Shakespeare um, involves this Roman Catholic versus Protestant tension into the play? I write about that quite a bit in my book. That's part of my Hamlet chapter. The, tension, the tensions that Shakespeare brings into the play between Roman Catholic and Protestantism, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, you know, it wasn't... Um, I think I talk about this in the book a little bit, in my book a little bit as well, but, you know, Henry VIII is the one who breaks... is the, is the British monarch who breaks from the Catholic Church. Now, when he does so... Um, it causes quite a stir, obviously. He is excommunicated by the Pope, and this causes a lot of problems. Um, Henry VIII, his son, Edward VI, takes over after him. Edward VI is a pretty strong Protestant, and he starts rounding up some, some Catholics, and he puts them to death. Um, after Edward VI, uh, Edward VI dies, uh, his sister Mary uh, takes over, and she's known as Bloody Mary uh, for the reason that she starts rounding up Protestants. So she swings the opposite way. She starts rounding up the Protestants, the, the influential Protestants in, in the country, and, and has them put to death. And then when Mary is removed from office violently and um, powerfully, uh, she is replaced by uh, Mary's sister, uh, Henry VIII's other daughter, um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth I. And, uh, and Elizabeth rules for a long time. And although Elizabeth is more moderate than Henry, Edward, and Mary, she still is a Protestant. And this is a Protestant kingdom. And that is not okay with the Pope at the time. And so the Pope is, is definitely not a friend to England at this, in, this, in this time period. And so this, this tension is, is, is real. I don't really know how to, how to compare that to something we're experiencing today in modern society. Um, perhaps tensions today between Christian and atheist groups, um, but that doesn't really capture it. There was a clear religious or denominational tension going on. Um, Roman Catholics did not think that Protestantism was a, uh, a legitimate Christian religion or, um, or, uh, or faith. So... That's an important thing to think about. And look for that. Look for ways. And as you, look, as you read my chapter, I would, I, would, uh, I would love for you to have comments about where you see those different Protestant elements in the play or Roman Catholic elements. I think that's an important part of the makeup of this, of this play. Okay, so moving forward. Um, let's move to Act 2. Um, in Act 2, Claudius begins to be a bit skeptical, a bit suspicious of Hamlet. And he wants to um, watch and spy on Hamlet. Claudius um, knows what he's done. Obviously, he's no fool. And by this time in the play, Hamlet knows as well that Claudius killed his father. It was a murder. This was a regicide, the killing of a king. Uh, and 
This is very illegal, but it's done in secret, and Claudius uh, is, is trying to protect himself. He sees in Hamlet a potential threat. Hamlet may be figuring this out. And so his thought is to look a little closer. What, is ha- what does Hamlet know? And what happens is that uh, Claudius needs to start putting spies out there to surround Hamlet with, with some of these informers. And who does he pick? He picks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And these are buddies. These are friends of Hamlet's. This introduces a new, a new topic. What is friendship? And friendship is one of the key topics in the play. Here's a, here's a theme. Here's a, sorry, here's a, a, a key term for you. The term theme. A theme. And the way I like to use that term is this. A theme is the statement that a text makes about a subject. A theme is a statement that a text makes about a subject. So friendship, in this sense, would not be a theme. It would be a topic, right? What does the text say about friendship? What statement does the play make about this topic, friendship? And, and so we see some of this interaction um, in Act 2, Scene 2, line 278. I am flipping there now. And uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern... Um, they uh, are asked a question. He says, um, actually here, Hamlet says to them on line 272, beggar that I am, I am even poor in thanks, but I thank you. And sure, dear friends, my thanks are too dear a halfpenny. Were you not sent for? Is it your own inclining? Is it a free visitation? Come, come, deal justly with me. Come, come, nay, speak. Guildenstern responds, in kind of an elusive way, right? He's been told not to tell Hamlet that, that he's been uh, hired by the king in a way to spy on him. And Guildenstern says, what should we say, my lord? And Hamlet, again, reading his friend, anything but to the purpose. You were sent for, and there is a kind of confession in your looks which your modesties have not craft enough to color. I know the good king and queen have sent for you. And then Rosencrantz says, to what end, my lord? So, so what, what I get from Hamlet's frustration is that his friends are lying to him. His friends are deceiving him. They're not being honest. Uh, Hamlet then responds to that. That you must teach me. But let me conjure you by the rights of our fellowship, by the consonancy of our youth, by the obligation of our ever-preserved love, and by what more dear a better proposer can charge you withal, be even and direct with me, whether you were sent for or no. Rosencrantz says aside to Guildenstern, what say you? Hamlet then says, nay, then I have an eye of you. If you love me, hold not off. And then finally Guildenstern comes out with it. My lord, we were sent for. Hamlet then says, I will tell you why. So shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen mold, n- molt no feather. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my dispossession that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory, this most excellent canopy the air, look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth not to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. <laughs> what piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. 
And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. And then Rosencrantz, my lord, there was no such stuff in my thoughts. And then Hamlet again points, why did ye laugh then when I said, man delights not me? So, so what is Hamlet saying here? It seems that Hamlet is, is beginning to kind of catch on to what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are doing. He knows he can't trust them already. He knows that these guys have, a, have an agenda, that they are sent for by the king, and they are spying, they are double-dealing with Hamlet. And so he begins to kind of play on that. And he says, you know why? You know why they sent for you to watch me? You know why you're spying on me? Because I don't enjoy the world. Because, in other words, I'm mourning. And so what this is, is Hamlet kind of turning the tables on both the king and queen and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He's saying, in other words, I'm doing the right thing. I'm mourning, and they don't like it. I'm living my life in truth. I'm living my life in a way that is honest and full of integrity, and they are lying, and they are full of lies. And so there's this uh, discrepancy, this dichotomy, this tension between truth and lies that Hamlet represents, and that as he points to his mother and, and, and stepfather, and even to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he says, I'm not impressed, in other words, and, uh, and I'm not interested in playing games. This life... Uh, is not a joy to me, especially these roles that we are required to play. Um, so that is the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. These guys um, represent deception, and in many ways they, they're, they're, they're spying for the king. Uh, well, why would they spy for the king? Perhaps to get ahead, perhaps to curry favor from the king and queen, and, and then perhaps uh, double-deal their friend in order to um, step up in station. And so they can do this by spying on their friend. And so is that what a true friend does? Absolutely not. Um, and so these guys become kind of this foil to uh, true friendship. They become the, the antithesis of true, honest friendship. And who is an, an honor or, or an image of friendship? Well, that would be Horatio. Horatio is a man that Hamlet knows that he can trust. A man that Hamlet knows... Um, that he can rely on and, and, and put his trust in. And he says uh, just so much a little bit later in the text. So Act 3 moves into this um, bit about Ophelia. And so what is Ophelia's relationship with Hamlet? This, as it says in the text, was his girlfriend in a way, right? A love interest. And, and it seems by her reaction and his reaction to her that they were very close. They were very close in a relationship. And so um, we see... Um, Ophelia talking with her father Polonius in Act 3, Scene 1. Uh, Polonius is kind of a, a, a nut job, if you will. He's a bit of a, a weird old man. Mm. Sorry, I just have a sip of water there. He is um, a pawn of the king, does whatever the king wants him to do, doesn't really think. He talks a lot. Um, he says a lot of words. He doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you don't really understand Polonius, that's, that's intentional. He's just kind of goofy and um, erratic. But he says here to, to Ophelia, Ophelia, this is Act 3, Scene 1, line 42. Ophelia, walk you here. Gracious, so please you. We will bestow ourselves. Read on this book that show of such an exercise may color your loneliness. We are off to blame in this. Tis too much proved that with devotion's visage and pious action we do sugar o'er the devil himself. The king says, in an aside, oh, tis too true. 
How smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience. The harlot's cheek beauty with plastering art is not more ugly to the thing that helps it than is my deed to the most painted word, O heavy burden. So ironically, what Polonius says to Ophelia strikes the king at the heart because King Claudius knows he is guilty. He knows he is covering over his guilt um, with a fake... Um, uh, a fake facade, if you will, or a facade, a false facade. He is covering over his guilt and, and hiding it. And so uh, we have that going on. But here comes Hamlet, right? I hear him coming, says Polonius. Let's withdraw, my lord. And so they're behind the arras, they're behind the, the curtain, they're listening to Hamlet. And Hamlet comes in saying this, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To be or not to be. To live or not to live. To be or not to be. To, to act or not to act. It's kind of all wrapped up in this, right? Is it nobler to suffer life and then in the difficulties of life or to fight against them? Should we just deal with things as they come to us? Should we just suffer difficulties as they come to us? Or should we fight against them? That's the first question. Then he goes on to this. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the nat thousand natural shock that, that, flare, that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. So is, would it be better just to die? But, but the rub, the, the problem is, as he says here, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us a pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. So he says, it would be one thing, maybe, maybe to die is better. But if dying involves dreaming, and dreaming is just like life, then I'm just entering into a whole new set of problems that I don't know anything about. I'm entering a whole world of, of the afterlife that may be a, a dream life as well that could be full of problems too. And then he goes on, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of offense, of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin. Who would go through the, the painful, painful life? Who, who, who goes through a painful life and continues to bear the pains of, of, of a struggle? Um, when he could just end his life with a knife, a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler return, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Why don't we kill ourselves? Why don't we run to suicide? Because we don't know what comes next. We don't know what's in the next life. We're not going to fly to a new life and not know anything about it, thinking we're going to outsmart our current state of affairs. We're going to outsmart our fate by killing ourselves. We have no idea what could come next. And so this, this conscience, this consciousness makes cowards of us, right? This question of what is in the future makes us cowards to kill ourselves. And he goes on, this conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over with a pale cast of thought. And enterprise is a great pitch and moment, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Hmm. We lose the name of action. We're not going to kill ourselves because we know what may come in the afterlife. Maybe a whole new set of problems. So we're not going to run to that mystery as well. And so, what do we do? We, we have to, to think 
about this this life we have and live it the best we can. And so he, he decides, obviously, is to be is the answer, right? To be is the answer. We must be. We must fight against the sea of troubles that life brings to us because that's what we know. That is what we know. That seems to be the answer to his question because he continues living. He doesn't kill himself, right? He, he continues to try to figure out how to, um, how to honor his murdered father and how to, to get vengeance there properly. Hamlet has is, is been known and called someone who lacks action, someone who cannot act or cannot move and, 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 and put thought to action. But in many ways, I, I, I see it differently. I see him as someone who's very thoughtful, who doesn't run headlong into murderous revenge. To me, that seems a virtue in Hamlet, that he is thoughtful, not hasty. And, um, and yet, he's not a perfect individual. Uh, Shakespeare builds some, some problems into his character. Um, problems, at times, of being very passionate and very hasty, uh, especially when he goes to his mother's room a little later in the, in the play, after what's called the, the dumb show, or this, this play that he performs with some actors that are traveling through, of what he believes must have been the, the act his uncle performed against his own father. And when he portrays this in front of his uncle, his uncle freaks out. And by knowing that, he says, ah, yes, there we go. His conscience is coming clear. I have shown him his crime, and now he is freaking out. And so when he goes to his mother's chamber, she's mad at him for upsetting the king. But it's there he begins to be honest with her, and he tells her the truth about what's going on. In a moment of, of kind of rash behavior, though, he hears a shuffling behind the, the curtain, and he stabs it with his knife, right, and he kills Polonius, the king's advisor. This is not a noble act. This is not a noble act by Hamlet. Some say this is an act of self-defense, that uh, he's acting in self-defense, but this seems to me more like a rash act of passion. He's angry. He's riled up. He knows now that his uncle is guilty of his father's murder, and so he runs the curtain through with a knife. That could have been anyone. It could have been a child, um, an innocent person, and it was. It was Polonius, uh, someone innocent that he kills, and he does this out of a rash, passionate act. Uh, that makes Hamlet obviously not a perfectly noble human being. All right, we're going to end right there for this time. I hope you're enjoying this play. Keep at it. We'll talk to you in the next lecture.